Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Sean Atwood's mountainside mansion was packed to the brim. Sweaty bodies grinded against each other on the dance floor. Piles of cocaine, meth, and ketamine were scattered across the tables and countertops. The bathroom sink was dusted with the bright pink residue of crushed Darvacet pills. But most people were passing around ecstasy pills imprinted with a tiny Batman symbol. That was what Sean's infamous house raves were best known for. English Sean, as he was known, wandered through the house high himself, not only on ecstasy, but on adrenaline. The thrill of the rave scene was an addiction of its own. He noticed someone he'd never seen before, a rugged Mexican man with tattoos up and down his arms, dealing weed and cocaine in the corner. Sean didn't have a problem with other dealers working his parties, as long as they didn't start any trouble. Sean went over and introduced himself. The man said his name was G-Dog. They talked for a while, and Sean decided he didn't seem like a threat. In fact, he seemed like a nice guy. After a few hours, they were already fast friends. And then the police arrived. Little did he know, by striking up that friendly conversation, Sean had started down a collision path with some of the most dangerous men in the country. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. 
This week, we'll dive into the life of Sean Atwood, who came to Arizona from the UK in the early 90s and became the state's most prominent ecstasy kingpin. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Sean Atwood's raves were unlike anything Arizona had ever seen before. He spent most of his teenage years immersed in the nascent rave culture of Manchester in the late 80s. And when he moved across the pond, he was one of the first people to introduce the craze to the United States. Back in Manchester, raves would take place in large warehouses or dance halls, fueled by hallucinogens and electronic dance music. Phoenix, Arizona was short on all of the above, so Atwood had to improvise. He started throwing parties at his apartment, passing out ecstasy he'd bought from the only local dealer he could find. What started out as a simple hobby grew into something else entirely. Atwood started outsourcing pills from Los Angeles, then flying them in all the way from Holland. With no competition from local dealers, in just a few years, he became the sole supplier of party drugs in Arizona, with operations stretching across the globe. Atwood was barely 30 years old at the peak of his drug dealing career in the late 1990s. By then, he had his own clothing store, kept an LSD chemist on his payroll, and traveled everywhere by limo. He bought a mansion in Tucson right next to Paul McCartney's house. He was so rich, his friends called him the Bank of England. Atwood was a former stockbroker. He knew his way around a business, but he was already a millionaire before he threw his first party. He was in this for the fun, not the profit. And like many a kingpin before him, Atwood didn't just sell his product, he partook in it himself. He recalls taking between 10 and 20 pills of ecstasy every weekend, along with meth, Valium, Xanax, and ketamine. Friends said he drank GHB, a liquid sedative like a vampire drinks blood. Atwood was the life of the party, drawing people in with his English charm, politeness, and intelligence. On paper, Sean Atwood was not the kind of man who became a drug trafficker. He'd grown up in a good family outside of Liverpool. He enjoyed economics. He went to business school and had a successful career as a stockbroker. One of his dealers said he looked like a guy from a big brokerage house in London who had somehow walked into the wrong party but was having a really great time. So how did this shy, pale, bald British man become the mastermind behind an international drug operation? Sean Atwood was born in 1968 in the small manufacturing town of Widnes, Cheshire, located between Liverpool and Manchester. He came from a struggling middle-class family that he would always describe as loving. His father was an insurance salesman, and his mother stayed at home. From a young age, Sean's teachers noticed that he had an unnatural interest in economics. He was fascinated by numbers and figures. 
Even as a child, he'd stay at school after hours to do homework problems that hadn't even been assigned. During his lunch break, he would read the Financial Times. The paper was, understandably, a bit above his reading level, so he had to ask his teacher, Mr. Dillon, to help him understand the business jargon. Mr. Dillon was charmed by Sean's affinity for finance. He sat with him after class and helped him read the newspaper. Then he started giving him private lessons, assigning him books and articles that were way beyond his grade level. By the time he was 14, Sean was already an economics whiz. He knew that one day he wanted to become a millionaire. Sean was always a shy kid. His passion for finance didn't help him make any friends either. He spent most of his evenings and weekends doing the readings Mr. Dillon assigned him, teaching himself the language of economics. When Sean was 16 in 1984, he was ready to get in on the stock market himself. That year, the British government under Margaret Thatcher privatized many of its public sector companies. Based on Sean's research, this was the perfect opportunity to capitalize on. He just needed some startup money to invest. But Sean's parents were strictly against Thatcher's privatization effort. Their son would not be profiting off such a contentious policy, not in their house and not with their money. So Sean went behind his parents' back and borrowed 50 pounds from his grandmother. He made his first investment in British Telecommunications, the largest telecom supplier in the country. Soon, his 50 pounds had doubled. Sean still didn't completely understand how the stock market worked, but he knew it was working. His first venture into real business had paid off, and the feeling of power and satisfaction was worth even more than the money. Sean now knew how he would achieve his dream of becoming a millionaire. But if he wanted to strike it big, England wasn't the place to do it. The real riches were across the pond. Around that same time, in 1984, Sean took a trip to visit his aunt, who lived in Arizona. When he stepped off the plane, he was blinded by the desert sun. It was almost always raining in northern England. Sean's aunt was always calling to tell him about the American dream. Huge mansions, expensive cars, immeasurable wealth and limitless opportunity. But he didn't really believe it until he visited and saw it with his own eyes. In Arizona, the sandy horizon stretched on and on with no end in sight. Sean's aunt wasn't exactly a sterling influence. She worked for a fraud detection company where she'd learned quite a bit about forging documents. When Sean visited, she forged a fake ID for the 16-year-old and took him out to bars. The first thing Sean noticed was that Americans loved his accent. His aunt introduced him as Paul McCartney's nephew, and everyone believed it. In Arizona, he wasn't just another pale, nerdy kid. He was a novelty, the natural center of attention. Sean's aunt told him he should think about moving out there someday. By the time his trip was over, his mind was set. When he got back home, he told his friends, when I get older, I'm going to America to make a million in the stock market and fly all you guys over. It was a promise he would keep. After the success of his first stock market endeavor, Sean knew economics was his calling. After graduation, he began a business degree at Liverpool University in 1987. 
but it was what he discovered outside of class that would change the course of his life. In the late 1980s, the rave scene was just starting to grip the UK. It all started with a new genre of electronic music called Acid House, which actually originated in Chicago. The music didn't catch on in the UK until December 1987, when a London DJ introduced it to the crowds at an all-night drug-fueled party on Southwark Street. Just like that, London rave culture was born. Coinciding with this new musical culture was the introduction of a new drug to Britain, MDMA, better known as ecstasy or molly. MDMA produces feelings of euphoria and enhances the perception of colors and sound, like flashing lights and music. Raves and MDMA went together like peanut butter and jelly. 1988 became known as the second summer of love. The rave scene got so big, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher called unsuccessfully for the parties to be banned. One of the biggest epicenters of the new scene was Manchester, or as the ravers called it, Madchester. During Sean's final year at Liverpool University in 1990, a friend from his economics class invited him to a party at the Thunderdome Club in Manchester. Sean had never been much of a partier, but the stress of school was taking a toll on him. He figured it might help him relax and decompress. The Thunderdome was probably the dodgiest place in Manchester. It was an old bingo hall packed to the brim with drug dealers, vagabonds, and petty criminals who were either too high or too poorly dressed to get into the more glamorous clubs on the other side of town. The air was so thick with smoke, it was impossible to see three feet ahead. A relaxing evening this was not. Sean had anxiety, and getting comfortable at a regular house party was difficult for him. This was a hundred times worse. If he was going to get through this night, he wasn't going to do it sober. Almost immediately after he walked in the door, someone offered Sean a pill. Without thinking twice, he took it. Soon all his worries dissipated. He waded into the smoke-filled crowd, and the strange faces around him started to look familiar. They were all on the same wavelength. Before he knew it, he was doing the impossible, talking and dancing with whole groups of total strangers. When Sean was on ecstasy, the barrier separating him from everyone else vanished. He understood people, and they seemed to understand him. By the end of the night, he'd befriended half the club. This one-time experience soon became more regular for Sean. Every weekend, he came back to Manchester to join the raves. As Sean said, it became my religion. He brought along his best friend from his hometown, who soon earned the nickname Wild Man. However, Sean continued to stay focused on his studies, and in the summer of 1990, he graduated with honors. It was finally time to make good on his promise to move to America and become a millionaire. A year after graduation in 1991, Sean made the leap and moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where his aunts still lived. He wanted to become an investment analyst, but the only finance sector jobs he could find in Arizona were in the stock market. He applied for a job as a stockbroker anyway, hoping to get his foot in the door. The first thing Sean was asked was whether he had a work visa. He did not, but he did have an aunt who knew how to forge documents. 
He had his aunt help him make a passable H-1B visa, and he quickly got a job as a stockbroker, working on commission. The reality of the finance world didn't quite live up to the dream. He had to be at work at 6 a.m. every morning for meetings. The rest of the day was spent cold calling a list of 500 people trying to pick up clients. He usually didn't leave the office until nine at night. At first, he barely made any money. All the economics books he'd read didn't translate into an aptitude for salesmanship. He was living off cheese sandwiches, stuck in the office all day, while the bright Arizona sun burned outside the window. But Sean powered through. In just a few years, he became the firm's top broker. By 1996, the 28-year-old business savant was grossing around $500,000 per year. But the long, stressful hours were grueling. What's the use of money if you don't have any time to enjoy it? After five years of the stock trade in late 1996, Sean was a victim of what his co-workers called Bob's, burnt-out broker syndrome. He missed his college days when he could at least blow off steam by clubbing on the weekends. One day after work, one of Sean's co-workers invited him out to a club in downtown Phoenix. Sean immediately agreed. He had no idea that his life's entire direction would take a dark turn by the time the night was over. Coming up, Sean's venture into Phoenix nightlife will take him down the road from casual partying to international crime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now back to the story. Sean Atwood had moved to Phoenix, Arizona from England in 1991 chasing his lifelong dream of becoming a millionaire through stockbroking. But even though he was beginning to amass a fortune, the long hours and stress of the job were exhausting. After five years, the 28-year-old broker was at his breaking point. So when one of his co-workers invited him along on a night out in 1996, he didn't think twice about it. He'd been missing the party lifestyle he left behind in Manchester. As soon as he arrived in the club, he noticed a man in the middle of the dance floor, moving with an energy and euphoria all too familiar to Sean. He recognized it immediately. The man was on ecstasy. Ecstasy was a rare find in Arizona. The drug hadn't caught on in America nearly as much as it had in Britain. Sean approached the man and asked him where he'd gotten it. The man pointed to another person across the room, a dealer who was visiting from out of town. If Sean wanted any E, he'd have to get it fast before it all sold out. 
Sean hurried over and bought out the dealer's entire stack of ecstasy. The price was much higher than he was used to, about $30 a pill. The laws of supply and demand were in full effect. Sean shelled out the couple hundred dollars anyway. He took one pill himself, gave one to his co-worker for free, and pocketed the rest. Over the next few weeks, throughout late 1996, Sean fell back into his old habits, working all week, partying all weekend. The clubs in Phoenix were nothing to write home about, so he started throwing parties in his own apartment instead, passing out pills to his guests free of charge. He and his friends blew through the rest of the ecstasy in no time. Phoenix didn't compare to Manchester at all. The rave scene barely existed, and tracking down more ecstasy was a difficult task. Local dealers never carried more than 50 or so overpriced pills at a time. Someone needed to bring Arizona up to speed, and that person was Sean Atwood. Sean was only 28, but he'd been an economics wizard since he was in grade school. He could recognize the business opportunity in front of him. Ecstasy dealing was an untapped market, and thanks to his years of partying in Manchester, he knew exactly what it took to make the demand boom. Since ecstasy was a relatively new drug, American authorities didn't know how to properly identify it or deal with its distribution. And as far as Sean was aware, there were no mafias or cartels controlling the market. The risk was minuscule, and the potential reward was huge. Sean's mind was made up. The straight-laced stockbroker would venture into drug distribution. In 1997, at only 29 years old, Sean quit his job as a stockbroker. The everyday stress and strain of the job wasn't worth the money. Not when there were so many other, more exciting ways to earn a fortune. Recognizing that there was a new trend on the horizon, he took the bulk of his savings and poured it into technology shares. 1997 was the early days of the dot-com bubble, the period of the most extreme growth in computer and internet technology. Within no time at all, Sean's investments paid off. His net worth shot up to over a million dollars. He didn't even have to lift a finger. With a million dollars and no job holding him back, Sean pledged to focus full-time on bringing Manchester's rave scene to the Arizona desert. Sean's house parties quickly outgrew his small apartment. They were more interesting than any of the nightclubs in Phoenix, and word of mouth spread from his white-collar colleagues to the city's underground party scene. Sean brought his old pal Wildman over from England to help him turn his makeshift raves into a real operation. Sean bought a spare house resembling the party venues he remembered from back home. Large, spacious floors, psychedelic decorations, and a perfect space for a DJ to set up shop. He started throwing bigger and better parties, first for his friends, then for friends of friends, and then for anyone who showed up at the door. The party started off with a couple hundred people, then grew steadily until at their height, there were as many as 10,000 guests a night. There were so many people lining up, he started charging admission. The raves were the basis of his business model. At first, he kept giving away ecstasy for free. Then, once the demand was planted, he started charging. And then, when the demand outpaced the local supply, Sean decided it was time to cut out the middleman. 
One of the local dealers got his supply from a former fraternity brother who lived in Los Angeles, where there was a vibrant underground club scene. That supplier got his ecstasy directly from local manufacturers, so there was never a shortage of supply. Not long after he quit his job in 1997, Sean arranged a meeting and drove up to L.A. Sean treated it as a business meeting, a mere exchange of money and merchandise. He didn't consider himself a drug trafficker, and he didn't want to become entangled in the messy politics of the criminal underworld. He just wanted to get his pills as quickly and efficiently as possible. The supplier's going rate was $1,200 for 100 pills. That was a far better deal than what Sean was getting in Phoenix. But his demand was growing so fast, he'd blow through 100 pills before the weekend was over. Instead, he put in an order of 500 pills for $5,000. Sean worked out a method where he would arrange an order with the supplier five days in advance, then fly to LA to retrieve it. He would come back for the same amount of product every month, like clockwork. Now with enough drugs to keep his guests happy, Sean could expand his parties to his heart's content. He went out to clubs downtown, recruiting any young people who looked like they might be interested in partying a little harder. When the weekend rolled around, thousands of willing customers flocked into Sean's house. He sold each pill for $30 triple the price he'd paid to his supplier. That initial $5,000 purchase turned into $15,000. The money was rolling in, but even more valuable was the attention. Within a few months, he was an infamous character in the nightlife scene. Everyone knew about English Sean, the ex-stockbroker with the endless supply of ecstasy. People would approach him on the street to ask for invitations. Famous DJs from around the world agreed to fly in for his parties. He later said the rush of throwing the raves was more addictive than the drugs. The rave scene was up and running in Arizona, and it was all because of Sean. Standing in his living room, high on ecstasy, watching thousands of strangers lost in the beats of the same DJs he'd admired in Manchester, he was perfectly at peace. No stress, no early morning alarm clocks, Nothing but money flowing in and good vibes flowing out. As he later recalled, he thought to himself, this is it, I've realized my dream. Sean's parties soon became too much for him to handle by himself. He hired a security team led by his best friend, Wildman, who was, in Sean's words, respected for his fighting skills. They were more like bouncers than gang enforcers, carrying tasers instead of guns or knives. He put together a separate team of about two dozen dealers to take care of buying ecstasy from Los Angeles and passing it through Phoenix. They were also in charge of stamping each pill with a Batman logo. Ravers tended to pay close attention to the symbols stamped on the pills they took to keep track of the quality of the drugs from each dealer or manufacturer. Every pill that passed through Sean's hands was stamped with the spread wings as an assurance that his drugs, like his parties, were top of the line. Sean and his dealers all wore caps and t-shirts with the same Batman logo to promote their brand. To Sean, Batman was a self-made hero, just like himself. He didn't have any superpowers, but his intellect and wealth made him untouchable. 
Sean's former associates attribute his success to the charisma, magnetism, and generosity that allowed him to build connections within the rave scene. But just as important to his success was his business acumen. Sean had a thirst for expansion. He kept ordering bigger and bigger shipments from his supplier in LA, first 500 pills, then 1,000, then 5,000. At that point, his supplier was struggling to keep up. If he was going to keep his Phoenix empire running, he needed a more prolific and reliable source. He asked himself, all right, so where are these LA guys getting the pills from? After a few months, Sean did some digging and found out his LA supplier was importing his drugs from a pharmaceutical factory in Holland for a mere $3 a pill. Sean's decision was already made. It was time to go international. Coming up, Sean's ever-expanding drug empire will go international and become entangled with one of the most dangerous mafia groups in the United States. If you're looking for plump lips at last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XE and Juvederm Ultra XE, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all gel fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit www.juvederm.com. Now, back to the story. In 1997, 29-year-old Sean Atwood gave up his successful stockbroking career and became the foremost rave organizer and ecstasy distributor in Arizona. Within months, his parties had become so popular that his drug supplier in Los Angeles couldn't keep up with his demand. Sean found out his supplier was getting his ecstasy from a factory in Holland, where drug laws are relatively loose. The obvious move was to cut out the middleman and buy pills directly from the manufacturer. There was only one problem. Sean couldn't leave the country. Sean had gotten his stockbroking job using a forged work visa. It was convincing enough to fool his bosses, But if he tried to come back into the country using the same fake visa, he'd almost definitely be caught. So Sean stayed back in Phoenix and sent a few of his employees on a fact-finding mission to the Netherlands. Sean's dealers found a pharmaceutical plant near Amsterdam that illegally produced ecstasy pills. They bought some samples and brought them back for Sean to inspect. The quality was good, and each pill was only $3.00 compared to the $10 he was paying his supplier in LA. All Sean needed to do was put together a network of dealers that could handle the overseas shipping. He recruited more dealers from the circle of ravers, mostly young people in desperate need of a job. They were sure to be loyal. As one associate recalled, they had no credit histories, no rental histories, no jobs, nothing really going for them, except that they worked for Sean. 
Sean bought his dealers cars and apartments, which he put under their own names. He told them to run all their operations from their apartments to avoid any connections to his own properties. When it came time to pick up a shipment, Sean would give his associates a white envelope with $10,000 in cash already in Dutch currency. They'd hide the envelopes in plain sight, inside the enormous baggy pants that were already an essential part of the raver uniform. After analyzing the most efficient routes, Sean drew up a travel pattern that would make it hard for authorities to track his shipments. His dealers would fly to either Germany or France, then he'd put them on a train to Amsterdam to pick up the ecstasy. They'd take the train back to Germany or France, then fly to Mexico, then cross the border into Arizona. It was complicated, but it worked. Airport security itself wasn't much of a problem. Ecstasy was still relatively new, and police in any country weren't well equipped to identify it. Moving the product was as simple as buying thousands of pills in bulk, putting them in a suitcase, and walking onto a plane. Just in case their luggage was searched, Sean had his associates hide the pills in vitamin bottles, or inside bigger items that were difficult to open, like computer towers. Sean's entire global trafficking network was organized in just a few months in 1997. He was pulling in a few thousand dollars every weekend from drug sales, along with untold sums of admissions fees from his weekly raves. He invested most of that money back into the business, making sure he had good product and the manpower to sell it. To maintain a facade of legitimacy, Sean gave his giant sums of cash to his dealers, let them keep 10%, and had them write a check for the other 90% to his business account. When he cashed the checks, he recorded them as promotional services or entertainment consulting. By the year 2000, the Atwood Enterprise, as it was called, was importing up to 40,000 ecstasy pills at a time, with each shipment bringing in $1.2 million of revenue. Sean's friends started calling him the Bank of England, the Wolf of Witness, for the name of his hometown. But the massive profits came with massive risks. In the world of drug trafficking, danger is always just around the corner. Sean's raves had become a natural place for other drug dealers in the city to meet with their clientele. Since Sean only dealt in ecstasy, he had no problem with dealers selling other drugs in his house. He usually had his security team keep an eye on them and point out anyone who might become a problem or draw unwanted attention from the police. The local police were well aware of Sean's loud all-night raves, but since ecstasy was so difficult to track, they didn't have enough evidence of illegal drug use to raid the place. He was wary of the attention he might bring on himself by bringing more serious and easily traceable drugs like cocaine and meth into his parties. But he also liked using cocaine and meth, so he was willing to let it slide. At one of his parties in 2000, he met a cocaine dealer named G-Dog. Sean approached him and started a conversation. He saw something in G-Dog that he recognized in all his best associates. An energetic drive, a positive disposition. By the end of the night, they'd become fast friends. Then, the police arrived. Before anyone could react, a policeman was pointing his gun left and right, 
the crowd became a panicked mob, with all several thousand people scrambling to get out the door. The officer screamed, nobody leave. G-Dog pulled out his own gun and leveled it at the officer. He yelled back, the only one who is not going to leave is you. Sean and his security team ran outside and into one of the neighboring apartments, which Sean also owned, but it put under the name of one of his associates. Within minutes, helicopters were circling the building. Police were filing down the hall, knocking on every door. Then there was a knock on the window of Sean's apartment. He froze. When he finally turned to look, it wasn't the police. It was G-Dog. Sean let G-Dog in. They turned off the lights and sat on the floor in silence as the police searched the building. When they came to Sean's door, he simply didn't answer. The police eventually gave up and left. The next morning, Sean drove G-Dog home and dropped him off. G-Dog told him, for having my back, I've got your back from now on. My brothers will have your back as well. Sean thanked him, but he didn't make much of it. He didn't realize that he'd just been promised the trust and loyalty of the entire New Mexican Mafia. The New Mexican Mafia was formed in the 1970s by Latino inmates from the Arizona State Prison. Their criminal operations, which mainly revolved around drug trafficking, ran deep and wide by the turn of the 21st century. As the weeks went by, G-Dog kept coming to Sean's parties and eventually started working for him as a dealer. G-Dog quickly became Sean's second closest confidant after his longtime pal, Wildman. A few months into their partnership, G-Dog invited Sean over to his house to meet his brother. Sean happily agreed. It would be an honor to meet his family. But the family he met wasn't quite what he was expecting. The house they drove up to was surrounded by customized lowrider cars. When they went inside, they were greeted by a swarm of tough-looking men covered in chains and tattoos, G-Dog's brothers. And among them was G-Dog's actual brother, Raul. Sean's eyes were immediately drawn to the TV on the wall, the biggest TV he had seen in his life. Right next to it was a rocket-propelled grenade launcher. What exactly had he gotten himself into? He glanced around at the exits, which were all blocked by large, intimidating men. One of the men swung a spoonful of cocaine into Sean's face and said, snort it. Sean looked at G-Dog. G-Dog nodded. Sean didn't want to push his luck, so he did as he was told. G-Dog's brother Raul stepped forward and gave Sean a proposition. They were having a party that weekend, and they heard Sean could get them some top-of-the-line ecstasy. Sean sighed in relief. He let the men test out some of his product. It was the first time any of the gangsters had done ecstasy, and they were all high as kites, smiling and giggling. They wouldn't stop hugging Sean. By the end of that encounter, the New Mexican Mafia offered Sean their protection. He accepted the offer, but he didn't truly understand what it meant. He was now officially in business with the most violent gang in Arizona. For the time being, this partnership was a good deal for Sean. With one of the largest gangs in the country working alongside him, he had a wider distribution network than ever before. He kept smuggling huge amounts of ecstasy across the globe without ever being detected. He was getting richer 
and more arrogant by the minute. A few months after taking G-Dog in, Sean received a message from someone named the Spaniard. He wanted to meet with him. Sean had never heard of this person, and neither had G-Dog or Wildman. But with his protection from the New Mexican Mafia, he had little to fear. He agreed to meet the Spaniard at a bar in Tucson the next day. When Sean got to the bar, he stopped outside and drank a bottle of GHB, a liquid party drug that always made him fearless. He told his bodyguard, while I talk to Spaniard, make sure you're always somewhere you can pull your gun in case they try to kidnap me. Who knows how big a crew he's with or what might happen. His bodyguard agreed. Sean walked into the bar, ready to negotiate. As soon as he entered the bar, a tall man with spiked hair greeted Sean. He introduced himself as Mark, then led Sean into the VIP area where the Spaniard was waiting. The Spaniard said, glad you came, English Sean. Then he nodded to a nearby sofa where a few people were sitting and said, Mark, clear that sofa. The man who'd led Sean in screamed, you need to move so we can sit down. The people on the couch jumped up and hurried away. Sean sat down between Mark and the Spaniard. And right then, the GHB kicked in. Sean reached out and playfully squeezed the Spaniard's thigh. He asked, so what's all this about? After a few seconds, the other two men laughed. The Spaniard told Sean they'd been watching him for a while. They knew he had a strong operation, and he wanted to be friends, not enemies. In fact, they wanted to become his new supplier. They could offer him more pills at a much lower price. Sean politely told them that his pills were of a higher quality than what they could supply him with. He was getting them directly from Europe. Mark screamed, Do you have any idea who Jimmy Moran is? Sean calmly replied, No. Mark continued, Sammy the Bull. That's who we work for. One call to him, and we can have you taken out to the desert. Whoever Sammy the Bull was, Sean figured he wasn't as scary as his friends in the New Mexican Mafia. He told them, I don't care who you work for. I appreciate the offer, guys, but no thanks. He didn't realize this was an offer he couldn't refuse. The very next day, a group of gangsters cornered Sean's best friend, Wildman, and knocked all of his teeth out. They offered a $10,000 reward to anyone in Sean's crew who could find him and bring him to Sammy the Bull Gravano. Sammy the Bull was an underboss of the Gambino crime family, one of the biggest families of the New York Mafia. By that point, he was rumored to have murdered around 2,000 people, and his next target was English Sean Atwood. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore Sean Atwood's accidental feud with one of the deadliest gangsters in the United States. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Jorge Molina and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.